talk to you this evening about control, our desire for control, and the pain it brings, and the freedom of letting go of control. Of course, it's a very appropriate talk for this retreat. A lot of ways you've had to let go of control. Maybe I'll just start by reflecting on my own process and experience of that control and and the way in which that shifted through my learning of the practice. The day that I arrived at the retreat, there was a storm here, as you all know. And the storm meant that after a 13-hour flight from Israel and a layover in Philly, I got on the plane and my plane landed in Denver instead of in San Francisco. (laughs) And to refuel and I sat on the runway for a few hours didn't really know what I was getting here, finally got here, got picked up by some lovely folks, started heading up, heard there was a landslide, a <laughs> mudslide, right? <laughs> Couldn't make it to the retreat center, sort of figured out our way there anyway, <clears throat> got here, it's clear most people couldn't get there. And what was quite precious for me in that process, you know, exhausted, jet-lagged, like, oh no, here's this whole retreat we planned. I've come across, halfway around the world to do it. Not happening today. Um, was that I didn't suffer. I didn't suffer. Which was quite special. Because there were times in my life when I would have been racked with anxiety and worry and oh my God, it's not working out and what's going to happen and what am I going to do? And it just felt pretty clear. It's like, well, we're doing what we can do. We're not in charge of the weather. We're not in charge of the mudslide. <laughs> we're contacting people. We're letting them know, you know, what the situation is as best we can and where they can stay and trying to take people, take care of people as best we can. And that's all we can do. And because I wasn't fixated on the need for control, which didn't in any way let go of the need for action or doing whatever we could to make the situation as best as we could, but because I wasn't fixate on the need for control, there was no suffering. There was no suffering. But it didn't stay that way. So then we're in the middle of the retreat, all of a sudden we're losing power again, people are maybe going to have to leave rooms, switch, people are soggy and wet, right? And I start to notice suffering arising, right? Suffering arising. And the suffering isn't arising because what's happening now is any different or worse than what was happening two days before, right? No, there's no essential difference in the external circumstances. Suffering is starting to arise because I'm starting to have worries about like, oh no, therefore this isn't going to work out, and the retreat's going to fail, and people aren't going to like me, and right, whatever else is happening in my mind, right? And then I notice, oh, Right, trying to control, feeling I need to be in control. Things have to work out a certain way. And then I'm suffering. It's like, oh, that doesn't feel good, right? <laughs> then I'm suffering. And it's, it's that simple. It's like that clear, right? We are still doing everything we could do. You know, you guys didn't know that, but like we were calling the right people who were like calling the county so that we could try and get power back on. You know, what we were, whatever we needed to do, we had done. There was nothing else we could do. That was it at that point. We put on heat in other rooms. People could go there if they wanted to and take warm showers. You know, like, whatever needed to be done was done. That was it. 
the Shamad Gun and lit the, lit the fire in the, the house which had, you know, no electricity and no light and no heat, right? So we had some heat there. But the only difference was my internal response and my internal reaction. All of a sudden, I started spitting off into stories. And when I could catch that and just stay with, oh, discomfort, fear, worried about what people's experience is going to be, worried about what people are going to think of me, worried about who knows what kind of long-term consequences are coming up in my mind, right? Then I could notice, oh, okay. That's just an experience that's happening inside of me. I can turn to it with some compassion. I can embrace it. I can be present with it. I don't have to suffer. I don't have to suffer in the same way. Because I can give up that, you know, kind of sick desire for control. And so this relinquishing control, this relinquishing the desire for control, is not about stopping to act in the world. It's about starting, stopping to act from that place of tightness and need and screwing down rather than from that planting, from that place of openness and possibility and exploration. This giving up on control is really Shabbat. Shabbat, it's what we do one day a week, every week. We say for one day, oh, it's broke, we can't fix it today. Right? The food's cold. We can't cook it today. Right? Whatever it is, we just we just stop. For one day a week we stop and say, you know what? It's not in my control. It's not in my control. There's something larger out there. There's something broader, which is not in my power. And saying these things are not in my control, the thirty nine, right, Malachot, the thirty nine kinds of work we don't do on Shabbat. He's not saying anything negative about them. They're all wonderful, great things that we do, right? It's just taking a day off to transform our relationship to them, right? It's about transforming that relationship. We're still going to reap and sow and build and cut and do all those great things we do. But we can do it now with a sense of it's not ultimate, Right? We're not ultimately in control of it. We don't have to get it done. No matter how important the thing is, we stop. We cease one day a week. No matter how important it is. (coughs) So why do we seek control so desperately? In many ways, it's fundamentally about fear. Fear of something going wrong. And so our ability to let go of control is a lot about being okay with things going wrong. Because I promise you, things are going to go wrong. (laughs) That's just the nature of this human life, right? We plan. As the Yiddish proverb says, man plans and God laughs, right? (laughs) We had all planned. The retreat was starting on Monday. We were getting here, flew in the whole thing, whole plan, right? Oops. That plan didn't work out. Mark Twain said, My life has been filled with terrible misfortunes. 
most of which never happened. <laughs> right? It's true for most of us. Like, think of, just on this retreat, how many fantasies came up for you? How many worries? How many things, terrible things that were going to happen? Right? How much do we suffer from things which actually never existed? Right? And never will exist. And we express that control in so many ways, that desire to be safe. <clears throat> First, we desperately try to fix the situation. Right? Something goes wrong at work, it's like, oh, got to do it, make sure it's happening, make sure it's fixed. Right? That anxiety, that pressure to fix it, to make it all right. Sometimes what we do, for some of us, definitely an old pattern of mine, is we shut down indifference. But indifference is just another way to exert control. It's like, oh, this won't affect me. I don't care about this, right? And therefore, I'm in control. It's not equanimity. But equanimity is being like, oh, I'm present with this. I care about this, but it's okay, right? That's equanimity. Indifference is like, oh, this is, this is unimportant to me. I don't actually care about this, right? Even though I really do. But saying that I don't care makes me feel in control, makes me feel safe. Anger. <clears throat> is another classic response. And you can feel it in the very texture of anger itself. Right? You get angry and you feel powerful. right? You feel in control. That situation which was scary and threatening in some way all of a sudden feels somewhat in your control. Somewhat in your ability to deal with. That anger, that power gives you a sense of power and safety. And another response, I think another interesting response <clears throat> is disdain or scoffing, or dismissing. It's, it's a little similar to indifference there. It's like, that person or thing is irrelevant, right? Not worth my consideration, beneath me in some way. And therefore, in my control, right? Not threatening, not unsafe. <clears throat> and we think everything will be okay. There's some part of us, that ego part, which thinks it's all going to be okay if we can just control it. And, you know, if we lived in a world where that was possible, maybe I'd say, go for it, right? <laughs> go for it, control everything, maybe that'll make you feel better. But that's just not possible in our world, right? That's just not the way this world is. This world is not under our control. No matter how much we strive, no matter how much effort we make, this world is not under our control. There's a story of Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Berdechev, an early Hasidic master, who saw a man hurrying along on the street. And he said to him, where are you rushing so? Where are you running to? And the guy said, well, I'm running after my livelihood. And Rebbe Levi Yitzchak said, how do you know your livelihood is in front of you, that you're rushing after it? Maybe it's behind you. All you need to do is stop and let it catch up. <laughs> And we're doing that all the time, like we're running after, we're running after whatever it is we think we need. Truth, livelihood, companionship, love. We're pursuing, we're pursuing, we're pursuing, we're pursuing. And what we've learned, I hope, a little bit on this retreat is that if we just stand still, sometimes those things can just arrive, right? They can just come on their own. If we just stop for a moment, if we just stand still, if we just get off the treadmill, it's like, oh, I forget who said it now. 
I feel bad not quoting the right person, but she said, the problem with the rat race is, even if you win, you're still a rat. (laughs) Right? It's like that pursue, 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 pursue. So can we just stop? And so that control piece, the desire to control, is really based on this sense of self we have, the sense of I. I, I, I can do this, I can fix this, I can make this happen. You can notice in anxiety, I'm responsible, I'm in charge. It's all about that sense of control that somehow it's up to me, right? Somehow I'm in control and somehow what I do is going to affect the whole situation. You can see that, for instance, in worry, right? Worry and anxiety. So on one level, worry comes to us and we worry because we're trying to control things, right? And we think if we worry, then we'll figure out the way to control it. We'll figure out the way to make it better. But it's also important to note that worry itself is a kind of control, right? The worry itself, the anxiety itself, makes us feel a little bit safer, a little bit more stable in the midst of that uncertainty. It's like the worrying itself is a place of kind of safety and refuge, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's unpleasant. It's still a place which is kind of known and gives us a kind of container. It makes me feel that I can do something about it. It's like, well, at least I'm worrying about it, right? (laughs) You know, I can't actually affect it. At least I'm worrying about it. It's like the old joke, you know this one, right? Jewish mother sends a telegram. Start worrying. Details to follow. (laughs) Right? So that's what we do. It's like, I don't know what's exactly wrong here, but if I worry, at least I'm doing something. I'm doing something in this situation. It's making something better, right? But of course we know when we really explore our experience that it's not making anything better. It's not helping our situation at all. And it's useful right now to just reflect for a moment, like, what have I worried about recently where my worry has not been helpful at all, right? Like, worries come up, anxieties come up, not affecting the situation at all, right? In no way. Like my reflection here on coming on the plane and getting delayed, there's a time when the plane being delayed, not knowing it would produce anxiety in me. But I can't do anything about it, right? I'm on the plane. Definitely no control over that situation, right? (laughs) Sitting on the tarmac in Denver, nothing I can do is going to have any effect on this situation whatsoever. So might as well just like sit back and relax and enjoy it, right? Because nothing actually so bad is happening. I'm just sitting on a plane. I mean, I've been sitting a long time. I'd like to get up and walk a little bit. Okay, so maybe I stand up. That's okay, but the situation's fine. And actually, that's pretty much always true. You know, like the situation right now is fine. It's the worry and anxiety around it which is producing the suffering. And so it's coming back again and again to the insights and the knowledge that we ultimately are not in control. We're not in control. One of my teachers said to me when I was talking to her about this, Anita, she said, Yeah, it's hard being general manager of the universe, right? (laughs) When you think you're general manager of the universe, it's going to be pretty rough out there. 
because like you're going to be constantly putting out fires and constantly making everything okay, and you're never going to succeed. Right? You're never going to get ahead of yourself. And th- there's a certain truth which is important to acknowledge and which is kind of painful to the ego, which is that, you know, ultimately, we don't do that much. Like, we do so little. It's okay. And it's beautiful the things we do, but like, no matter how much we do with our lives, we're like, one little life in the midst of billions, in the midst of some huge galaxy, in the midst of whatever, right? And there's a possibility in there to just take ourselves a little less seriously. It's this trick of the ego which thinks it's all up to us. And you can notice it. If you pay attention when anxiety arises, you can notice that it's connected to me. Like my own experience this week on this retreat. The first day, no suffering, because I could just see. It's like, oh, there's a situation. It's happening. Oh, it's happening. I'm part of it. How can I relate to it? In the middle of the week, started experiencing some suffering. Why? Because all of a sudden there was this feeling like, oh, it's up to me. It's like, if I don't fix this, or if my talk isn't inspiring enough, or if interviews don't go well enough, or like it's something about me, I'm in charge and I can make it all go right and I can all make it, make it all fixed, or I can make it all better. Oh, when I think it's up to me, then the suffering starts to arise because I start to have this illusion of control. But the reality is, Sutrita is a good example, I'm not in control, right? That's totally clear from your perspective, right? <laughs> All kinds of stuff is happening for you, right? Your mind is doing this, your heart is doing this, your body is doing the other thing. Definitely nothing to do with me, right? <laughs> I'm just like sitting up here, ringing the bell every once in a while, <laughs> talking a few times, right? And you're all doing your own thing. And when I can recognize that, then it's, of course, it's a much healthier relationship. It's like, all right, I can show up. I can do my best to sort of create the environment that's going to nurture your own practice and process and growth. And that's about it, right? That's basically all I can do. I can do that, and then the rest is up to you. And that's what it is to be on retreat. That's what it is to be on this human life. We sort of show up, do what we can, and don't get caught up in the things, which is basically everything, which is outside our control. And so control is motivated by fear. And when we're not aware and present with that, that fear often turns into aggression to ourselves and to others. You can see it in the micromanaging boss, right? Who can't hear his or her employees, who's totally obsessed and tense and stressed out and horrible to work for, because he or she is in a state of fear in a state of fear about what's going to happen and have to make it turn out right. We can see in our own experience of self-blame or shame or anger or recrimination at ourself or self-resentment, right? Just a form of control and self-violence which comes out of that experience of fear. We can see it in the smothering parent, right? Which is so focused and so fearful on what's going to happen with their children that there's no space for their children to grow and explore and take risks. 
And it makes sense, right? Because it is scary to let go of control. It's scary. The control attitude has worked for us in some ways. That's why we use it, right? It's not like we're not idiots and we're not out to get ourselves. Right? Two important things to remember. There's always some logic to what we're doing. There's some part of ourselves who thinks we're doing the best we can right now, actually, to support myself, to make myself... There's some part of me which thinks if you get anxious and worry about it, then you'll actually be able to make the situation better. Then you'll perform, then you'll be perfect, then you'll get the right grades, then you'll get the right job, then you'll get the right partner, whatever it is. Right? If you do those things, things will turn out. And so it's scary. It's scary. And that's important to remember and it's important to acknowledge, right? It's like, oh right, it's really challenging to let go of that sense of control. It's like a wonderful story. There's a guy being chased by a tiger. He's running from the tiger and he gets to the edge of a cliff. <clears throat> and he jumps off the cliff because there's nothing else to do and thank God on the way down, ah, grabs hold of a branch which is sticking out of the cliff. And he yells out, God save me, God save me. And a voice says, yes. He's like, oh, this is amazing, he's in shock. He says, is that really you, God? And the voice says, yes. He says, please save me. And God says, okay, just let go. And the man says, is anybody else there? <laughs> right? Like, how often do we do that? We know, like, I know, it's like, just let go. <laughs> really? Like, I know you said let go and let go, but, like, you really want me to let go about this, too? Like, also here I'm supposed to let go? Surely you didn't really mean that, right? There's something just like, no, no, no. And so we stop and we have compassion for that little kid inside, right? That little kid which is just scared and which wants to be in control, which wants to be safe. And we can just admit it to ourselves. You know, it's important to say, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, of course you want to be in control, of course you want to be in control. That makes sense, because it'd be so nice if you could control that. It'd be so nice if you could control that. But... You can't, right? You can't. And that's hard, but I can see that. I can see it, and then it doesn't have to turn into that spiral of suffering. <clears throat> and so the sense of control is related to the sense of self we have, the sense of self-will, of self-doing, of the autonomous self, the self which wants to be respected and acknowledged and seen, which wants to be in control, which wants to be independent. You're not independent. I'm just putting that out there. There's never been a human being who's been independent, right? That's never existed. From the beginning of time up till now, there's no such being. Right? Nobody's brought themselves into the world. Nobody's fed themselves. Right? Every human being is dependent. And yet we have this myth, especially in our culture, of 
being independent, being autonomous, not relying on others. Um, in a book I was reading about gratitude, there was a survey, and some, I don't remember exactly the percentage, but some shocking percentage of American men um, felt gratitude was like a negative emotion, <laughs> right? Because it expresses dependence, right? It expresses dependence. Like, I'm dependent on you if I'm grateful to you. And there are other ways. We want to be respected, acknowledged, seen, heard. And those are, are fine, good things. And of course, we want to have communities which help cultivate those ways of being in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But there's a question of when we don't feel that, when we're not being heard, when we're not being acknowledged, when we don't have a say, when we're at the mercy of those around us, how do we respond? We may want it to be different, but when we're stuck in the control place, that turns into anger, hurt, shame, blame. And when we're not in the control place, we can recognize it's not personal. I live in Israel. And anybody who's dealt with Israeli bureaucracy knows that you're not in control. <laughs> And it can produce a lot of anger and resistance and frustration and difficulty. And I would like the bureaucracy there to be better. I'm going to vote in ways that I hope it will improve. But when I'm caught in the midst of it, fighting against that moment doesn't help. Right? Feeling that I'm being persecuted doesn't help. Because it's not personal. You can see that sort of abstractly with the bureaucracy, because it's not personal. I'm just some other number showing up for them. But more deeply, it's never personal. It's never personal, actually. It's just people responding out of their conditions, responding out of their place, just like when you mess up, you're responding out of your own pain and confusion and suffering. And so the place of not control, of non-control, is the place of humility. The place of not being so centered on this sense of self, this sense of recognition, this sense of respect. It's this place of anava, humility. Moshe, we know, was said to be the, the most humble of all men. And it doesn't mean that he didn't act. Moshe acted tremendously, right? Tremendously. But it means that he didn't act from that small sense of self from the sense of being hurt or dismissed or not heard. But he acted from somewhere larger and more expansive. You know, Abraham, Abraham, one of our most famous scenes, when God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, challenges the divine, right? argues with God. And I think often sort of we say that, I know as a kid, and it's like an example of justice for us and pursuing justice and a beautiful example. But I feel like I often neglect to notice how terrifying that must have been. Right? Like imagine the person you would be most scared of arguing with. Whoever that person is, like the person you'd be most scared of challenging. Now multiply it by 100, right? <laughs> and Abraham's taking on God. Right? He's like, no, this isn't okay. This isn't okay what you're doing. And how does he do it? He says, 
הנה נהו אלתי לדבר אל אדוני ואנוכי עפר ואפר. I swear dare to speak before God and I am dust and ashes. And I think what's interesting and powerful about that line is he's not saying I'm dust and ashes and therefore my opinion is unimportant, do whatever you want. He's saying I'm dust and ashes, I'm just this little person, it's not about me, and let me tell you what I think you should be doing. Right? Let me take the action that seems right to me. Because it's an action that comes from this place of humility. It's action which comes from this sense of I'm not in control and in that place of not being in control I can still act with my greatest wisdom. I can act with my greatest power. And for me, that place is very important. It's important because when I advocate or act, whether it's in my family, my community, politically, however I'm doing it, from the place of control, then when I lose, which I do sometimes, right? We all lose sometimes. Then it's incredibly painful. And not only is it incredibly painful, but my experience is that it leads to despair and it leads to me turning off and pushing away. Like, forget about it. I'm not getting involved in this anymore. This is too much, right? But when I act and advocate from a place of this is what I want to happen and I know I'm not in control. I can do the best that I can do, but I can't be in control. No matter what I demand, it may not turn out the way I want. Then when things don't turn out the way I want, it doesn't have to become despairing. It doesn't have to become that sense of lostness. It doesn't have to become that sense of, well, forget this. I'm not getting involved anymore. And the same is true in our internal life, in the life of our emotions. You know, growing up as a boy, I think it's, it's often particularly true of men, though it can be true of any of us. You know, I feel like in some ways, I wasn't very clear on what an emotion was, you know. <laughs> and I had some of them. <laughs> but it wasn't like totally clear what that was and how one spoke about them. And the messages I got was that it wasn't really safe to have strong emotions, most strong emotions. There were certain strong emotions which were accessible, like anger, in certain circumstances as a boy, right? But most other strong emotions, sadness, fear, etc., were not actually acceptable emotions. And so I learned to be controlled, right? Poker-faced, to sort of shut down. But eventually, which is what always happens when we shut down, those emotions came back up to bite me. Because that's what they do. And I learned through a process of this practice... that I couldn't control my emotions, that I couldn't make myself feel safe by controlling my emotions, that I could only be genuinely safe by opening to all of my emotions, by opening to everything that I was feeling. And so when we decide instead to honor our feelings, it's another step 
in letting go of control. When I could really cry and really feel sad, I could also really feel joy. And they're only possible together. We don't get to choose. One of my teachers said, it's like a flower. Like the flower opens, it's open. Sun, rain, storm, whatever, the flower's open. That's the way it works for us too. It's not like I can be like, I'm just going to open to the joy. (laughs) That'd be great if that were true. But that's not the way it works, right? We're open or we're closed. And so if we open to the sadness, we open to the joy. And in opening to the sadness, we find the joy of opening itself. Of opening itself. And you may even notice that. It's one interesting thing about our practice is that attentiveness, openness, presence itself is actually pleasant. It's pleasant. And so even when you're being attentive to something unpleasant, it's still unpleasant. But the attentiveness itself, the connection, the awareness is actually pleasant. Engineers just notice that, right? The sense of connection itself is a pleasant, sustaining sense. And so what I learned as a young adult at the end of my college years and then in my first graduate work was that when I could really be sad, when I could really feel not just my sadness but my anger, when I really opened to my anger, then I could also really open to my joy. Right? And I can remember very clearly my time in Oxford, because I went, when I went right after college, where I was really working on opening to anger. And it was like scary and overwhelming, and I was shaking. And I can also clearly remember the moments of just joy and brightness and vibrancy there. And they're fundamentally connected. It's like the more I open to that fundamental energy of life, which it all is, the more I felt and open to that fundamental energy of life. And the more there's some piece of us where we say, oh, no, no. Like, I know James said open to stuff, but he didn't mean this. (laughs) This you're not supposed to open to, right? Every time we do that, and it's okay that we do that, because of course we do that, but just to know that every time we do that, we shut ourselves down to that vibrancy of life. We shut ourselves down to that chiyut, to that aliveness, which we are. And so we try to just relinquish control, to just let go of control, to just say, here I am, whatever's inside, come on in. Come on in. And if you do it, even just for a moment, you can notice directly it's profoundly liberating. Profoundly liberating to just say, ah, come on in. I can remember still with like complete clarity When I started practicing, I started practicing because I was um, depressed and had overwhelming anxiety. And it was really painful. And I can remember working slowly with the anxiety and the depression and opening them slowly and it like being a complete transformation in the way I was relating to my experience. But I can also remember the first time when I just said genuinely to the anxiety, Come on in, just like come on in, however much you are, however overwhelming you feel like, just completely come in. I'm going to completely open to you now, no holds barred. And it was like magic, because this thing which felt like this like huge, scary, terrible monster, 
it was all of a sudden kind of like ephemeral. I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's still there, but it's just, it's just not so big anymore. It doesn't feel so overwhelming. It's just this piece of my experience. And it's actually okay. It's actually okay. When I started sitting, and I can remember this in this particular room, my mind used to say to me, you will die if you don't stop right now. <laughs> right? Like that's what it would tell me. It would tell me, you are going to die. And I can remember that sense of like, my body would shake. I used to sit, I remember this, like, I could only sit in a t-shirt. So I'd like sweat so much when I was sitting. My body would shake and there'd be like sweat. And there'd be this message in my mind, like, you are going to die. You're going to die. And, um, and the practice was just saying like, oh, I see that. I see a ton of fear arising. <sighs> Not in control. Come on in. Ton of fear arising. Body shaking. Not in control. Come on in. And it was liberating. It's profoundly, profoundly liberating. It just changed my whole experience of what it means to be alive in this world. And yet, even when we sort of are able to not control in some ways, we still want to exert some control in the sense that we sort of think we should. So often, for instance, when I'm in interviews with, with students on retreats or in other experiences, I do one-on-one -on -one therapy and work with people. People say things like, I shouldn't feel this, but then they tell me what they're feeling, right? What does that mean? What does that mean I shouldn't feel that? Why not? Why shouldn't you feel that? That's just the experience you're having right now. I had a student say to me, a student who was taking care of a sick relative, he said, I shouldn't feel resentful. Really? Why not? Like, what's the judgment around what we should and shouldn't feel? It's just another form of control. It's like, oh, this is okay. This is in the okay box. This is not okay box. So even though I'm going to acknowledge that I am actually feeling that in some way, I'm still going to try and control it and keep it in the not okay box. But it's all okay. Yeah, resentment. You feel resentment sometimes. It's okay. So resentment is present right now. Wherever it is you feel like you shouldn't feel, it's okay. You should. There's no should or shouldn't. There just is and isn't. So you can either deny and pretend you're not feeling what you're feeling, which isn't going to help you, right? <laughs> or you can just say, oh, that's what I'm feeling right now. That's what I'm feeling right now. It doesn't mean, of course, it's important that we then act on that feeling, right? <laughs> Letting go of control is opening to everything which is present. It doesn't mean that we just then act out in any way we want. And in fact, precisely by letting go of the inner control and opening to whatever is present, we find ourselves be able to respond in a much wiser way to our circumstances, to what's happening in front of us. And so we try to control. We try to control other people's access to our emotions. We try to maintain our image or our face, what we think people should see of us. We don't want to burden people. We don't want to rely on others. We've been taught that it's shameful in some way to admit 
our genuine emotional state. And so we deny the truth to ourselves. Robert Holden said in his book, Happiness Now, he said, 90% of any pain comes from trying to keep the pain secret. I think there's a lot of truth in that. The pain comes from keeping it secret. And it's true that in much of our life, being emotionally genuine is socially unacceptable. That is true, and it's a challenge, right? You're not allowed (laughs) to just show your emotions. But when we have the courage to sometimes do so anyway, we can be surprised. We can be surprised by what can be contained and what can be held. And at the least, we can set ourselves the intention that whatever's possible externally at the moment, can we make everything possible internally? And there's always the bathroom, right? You can always go to the bathroom. It's pretty much a private space. People usually don't bother you there. You need some space to feel the anger, to feel the sadness, to feel the joy, right? Joy is also socially unacceptable. You're not allowed to just, like, skip and laugh (laughs) and be happy. People look at you weird, right? Like, what's that guy doing? (laughs) So can we create some space for them? I have to say, on the side, one one of the great benefits of having small children is that all of a sudden it becomes socially acceptable to be like completely ridiculous and just fun-loving, right? You get to do like all this crazy stuff, which normally people will be like, he's weird, but like, oh, he's with a three-year-old, so that's totally okay, right? <laughs> and you can do all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and so when we let go of control, you can feel it when we let go of control, we're liberated. We experience freedom. When we let go, there's a tremendous burden which is lifted. And we let go by, sort of there's like two fundamental moves I feel in some ways. In one way, this whole process of observing, of being present with, is that letting go of control. We become a kind of observer of our life, not in the sense that we're detached or indifferent, just in the sense that we recognize I'm kind of interested how this is going to turn out because it's not just up to me, right? I'm going to kind of do my part, but who knows how that's going to lead, right? Who knows how that's going to end up? So let's be a little curious about that. It's like, how is that going to end up? What's going to happen? And the other piece, which has really been something, particularly for me in the last year, I've really been working with. And I mentioned, I think this morning or yesterday morning, I can't remember when, is... Letting go of control means asking for help. Asking for help. Right? When we ask for help, we acknowledge, I'm not in control. I'm not in control. So ask for help from the people around you, from God, from the universe, from your heart, from your deepest self. Ask for help. It's the process of prayer. It's why prayer in the Amidah is just asking for a bunch of stuff. We ask for stuff because it's a constant reminder to ourselves, oh right, not in control. 
Oh, that other piece, wisdom? Yeah, not in control of that either. Sustenance? Oh, right, not in control of that. Right? Healing? Oh, yeah, definitely not in control of that. Right? Again and again, we acknowledge we're not in control. My partner, Debbie, um, has done work in chaplaincy. And the Christian chaplain she worked with has, have, I think, this really lovely phrase, which I've really taken in. They say, give it to God. Right? Like, you do everything you can, and then you give it to God. You give it to God. And that's that work of recognizing we're not in control. Can we just give it to God again and again and again? The Sufi mystic Rumi says, The way of love is not a subtle argument. The door there is devastation. Birds make great sky circles of their freedom. How do they learn it? They fall. And falling, they're given wings. We have to fall. We have to be willing to fall. It's the only way we get wings. It's the only way. And then we can make those great sky circles of our freedom. Then we can let go of the reins. And then we can be free. going to say all the things I've said. And of course we know that some part of us knows that there's no other choice other than letting go of control. And letting go of control doesn't mean we don't have choices, right? It's like a riptide. I remember this very clearly a few years ago, I went to the beach with my family and I was caught in my partner was, and I was caught in a riptide. Right? And if you know about a riptide or an undertow, if you try and swim against it, forget about it. Right? You just can't do it. It's too strong for you. So you have to swim parallel to it right? until you're out of the riptide, and then you can swim back into shore. And that's like our life. Right? It's like you're not in control. It doesn't mean you don't have any choices. It doesn't mean you don't have options. You have options. You can swim against the riptide and drown. Right? You can relax and get washed out to sea. Or you can make this choice, which is like, oh, there's some effort involved. I don't have to struggle against what's happening. I can go to the side. And in doing that, some spaciousness is created. So... Um, it took us a number of years to have children and a few miscarriages. And it was just unavoidably true that we weren't in control. Right? We were not in control. We couldn't control that. And when we struggled to exert control, it hurt. And the fact is that once we had children, that didn't change. You know, we still weren't in control. And when we started to exert control, 
it still hurt. And it's true even in, I remember this sort of most acutely, um, my daughter Ella, when she was, I don't know how, she was maybe six, eight months, eight months, something like that, got very, very sick. And we had to take her to the hospital, and she got, she had to stay in the hospital overnight. And, um, you know, she was just like screaming in pain, and the doctors were doing these tests on her, and only trying to help her, right? And all the doctors were doing were trying to help her. Um... And the pain of not being able to do anything right for her. And then noticing, even in the midst of that, my pain, it's like I can go into this story of control now, and that's just going to magnify the pain, and it's not going to help her. Or I can recognize I am not in control. We are doing right now everything we can. We're doing everything we can, and I just need to hold her right now. I just need to hold her, and that's actually all I can do. So I'm going to hold her, the doctors are going to jab her and do these various things, because they have to do that. And me adding my own anxiety, etc., to the situation isn't going to help anybody. Right? So I just held her. And it was painful, very painful to feel like, I can't control this. I can't make her all right at this moment. But it's also the truth. Right? It's the truth, and it's the truth I'm going to encounter her, and we're all going to encounter her with all our loved ones, Again and again and again and again. The Bizetzner says, he says, we don't act. We prepare ourselves for action and we allow the divine to act through us. It's like that image, that is wise action. That's action without control. It's not, I'm not doing. It's like, I'm preparing myself completely, and then I'm opening to what is right in this moment. What needs to come through me? What needs to act through me in this moment? And if we don't do that, he has a great line. He says, you know, I mentioned this to somebody. He says, if you watch your mind for a day, you'll see there's no difference between you and a crazy person. It's just that you don't actually say and act on all the things that come into your mind. And if you fight against it, you won't win. You're not going to win that war of fighting against your mind. And you've all noticed that already. Try to fight against the mind, you ain't going to win. You can't beat the mind. But if we just observe, if we open to the mind, then that tension, that craziness, that overwhelmingness dissolves on its own. And to do so requires uh, a flexibility, an openness, a creativity. This is a question. I want to share with you a question, a great question, which was sent to a renewal rabbi. This, a mother writes, she says, My daughter has chosen, independently of her father and me, to become a bat mitzvah and is studying hard. Is it okay to hold her ceremony in the Hindu ashram where she lives with her father? And if so, do we need to cover up the big statue of Hanuman, the monkey god, who sits in the central hall? It's like, oh, great question. 
Good question. How do you deal with that? So we have these, these like moments where it's just like, well, that's, what do you mean? <laughs> Monkey God, Bat Mitzvah, how is that all working together, right? So we could be like, control, control, fix it, stop, not okay, go away, right? <laughs> and that's not going to work very well for anybody, right? Or we can instead be open and creative. And open and creative doesn't mean there's a particular answer, right? The answer could be no. Don't do it in the hall. Don't do it in the ashram. Do it somewhere else because that's going to be more authentic and respect that experience, right? It's not about having an answer. It's not about not having boundaries. It's about not having that response of, no, 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 right? It has to be this way in control. It's like, oh, that's an interesting situation, <laughs> right? Good. How do we work with that? How do we do with that? What's the wise response here? What's the wise response? So we let go of control. And we can say, May it be your will before you. Right? It's not up to us. May it be your will. There's freedom there. There's joy there. There's joy. stories and a poem. Great stories. Two of my favorite stories. So there's a wonderful story about the Shpola Zaidi, who is a Hasidic Rebbe in the Ukraine. And he had his shtibel, his meeting place, where his Hasidim would gather, and they would sing and tell stories and do the things that Hasidim do. And there was one guy in the town, Moshe, who was a shoemaker, I think, who loved to sit with the Hasidim, but most of the day he was working, he was doing his thing, he didn't get the chance to be in their presence, to have that experience. So one night he came, and they were sitting and, and giving divrei Torah and telling stories and sharing wisdom and rejoicing together. And he sat and he was enjoying it so much. And they were, of course, drinking some schnapps, some l'chaim, right? The wine. And he noticed... It was starting to run out. People maybe were thinking about going home. So he quickly ran home, brought some more. Brought some more mashka, brought some more drink. And of course, the rejoicing went on and more rejoicing. And throughout the night, every time things started to die down, quickly run home, bring a few more bottles. The rejoicing would continue. The rejoicing would continue. It was like a beautiful, wonderful night. Lots of joy, lots of excitement, lots of wisdom, lots of love. And it went on until the wee, wee hours of the morning. So eventually, sort of everybody passed out in various places of the Beit Midrash. So the next morning, the Shpoler Zedi comes in to dabble in with his minion, you know, bright and early, just like us here. And it's like, you know, guys are like, 
like, right, stretched <laughs> over a bench, drool dripping out of their mouth, right, like, <laughs> exhausted, they got their clothes on from the previous day, he's like, what is going on here, right, <laughs> what is going on, and people are like, oh, very embarrassed, trying to pull themselves together, slightly hungover, they get up, they're like completely exhausted, they sort of get through Minyan, they pray together, they go home. Well, as it is interested. So he talks to them and he finds out what had happened the previous night. So later that day, after work, Moshe comes back in. You know, really feeling a lot of joy from the previous night. Felt so wonderful to be there. Shpola Zadie says, Moshe, come here. Come here. <laughs> Moshe is pretty worried, right? <laughs> it's like, yes. He said, you know, I am pretty upset with you. I'm pretty upset with you. And he's like, oh... I know I'm so sorry. Everybody was so exhausted. And, and, and I'm sorry I did it. He said, I'm not upset with you about that. Why didn't you invite me? <laughs> and it's that wonderful place of like not being in control. Right? Just like, yeah, good. Open to it. Just bring me along. <laughs> right? Bring me along. Hafiz says, and I've been thinking about this a lot, I was thinking about this talk a little bit over Hanukkah, he says, spill the oil lamp, set this dry, boring place on fire. If you have ever made wanton love with God, then you have ignited that brilliant light inside that every person needs. So, spill the oil. Spill the oil. We're so careful, you know what I mean? We don't want to spill the oil. God forbid a fire should start, right? We don't want to step on anybody's toes. We don't want to do anything wrong. We don't want to be out of place. But if we want to experience the vibrancy and joy of life, which is our birthright, then we need to be ready to spill the oil. We need to be ready to take the risk. We need to be ready to fall flat in our faces. Because it's only when we're ready to make mistakes and big mistakes that we also get the big reward. The joy, the presence, the vitality, which is our nature. So I'll end with a final story. Great story from the earliest collection of Hasidic tales from Shiv Chayabesht. It was told that once... Reb Yudel visited Reb Nachman in the holy community of Vladimir. Reb Nachman built a Beit HaMidrash, a study hall, practically on the water. And the mikvah, the ritual bath, was next to the Beit HaMidrash. And it's a Hasidic custom to go to the mikvah every morning. On the Sabbath morning, <coughs> they went to the mikvah. Reb Nachman was very diligent, whereas Reb Yudel was a little lazy. Where Reb Yudah was still taking his clothes off in the mikvah, Reb Nachman was already praying before the ark. Right? So Reb Yudah was still getting undressed. Reb Nachman already gone to the Beit Midrash, already started Minyan, was already leading prayers. When Reb Yudah got out of the mikvah, he heard Reb Nachman singing Ha'aderet Ve'amuna, part of the morning service in the Tzachsvarat. And he became very excited. And he ran to the Beit Midrash dressed only in his shirt, and he danced in the Beit Midrash for about two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So there's like a Reb Yudel in all of us, right? <laughs> He's like a little more chill, <laughs> a little relaxed. And yet when he gets moved, he runs the Beit Midrash and dances for two hours, dressed only in his shirt, right? Not normal, <laughs> right? Not that socially acceptable, right? But actually held up here in these Hasidic tales as, as a paragon, right? As a paradigm. It's like, it's an invitation to say, oh yeah, sometimes this isn't what's expected. This isn't what's acceptable. This isn't what's in control. And this isn't what feels safe. But this is true. This is true. And this is joyous. And this is the coursing movement of the divine in my veins. And so our invitation, even on these last hours and moments of this retreat, this invitation in our life, is to open to that joy of not being in control. To open to the mystery, to the awe, to the uncertainty. Opening to the awareness that there's something more powerful than us. That we don't get to make all the decisions. And when we do, there's great joy. There's great peace. And there's great liberation. There's liberation in stopping for a moment at any moment. Stopping for a moment that desire for control. And letting go into the wisdom of no control. That wisdom which is fundamentally free. So let's sit.